1: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. This
0: podcast contains explicit language.
2: Hey there, I'm Sam Stein, politics editor at the Huffington Post, and this is Candidate Confession.
0: And I'm Jason Cherkis, lowly reporter at Huffington Post, and Sam's sidekick for this podcast. But
2: not a reluctant sidekick. Not at all,
0: doing it willingly. Thank
2: God. Now this is a podcast about candidates and the campaigns that they run specifically how bad it can be for people who are on board that campaign. You know, you got these long bus rides, these bad hotel rooms, and all of it, for journalists at least, is to get a chance to throw a question at a candidate in a scrub. It's a soul-sucking affair. Or democracy. Depends on your perspective. So, to get a sense of how bad it is, we brought in our COG Igor Bobak to tell us what it's like to follow these things on a day-to-day basis.
0: It sucks.
2: Are you sure it sucks? Yes. (laughs) It also sucks for the candidates, especially the ones that lost for this podcast, those are the people we want to talk to. Now, why? Well, because they can give us an unfiltered look at what life is like in that campaign bubble. They have nothing else to lose.
0: And for our first interview, we talked to a candidate with a lot of beans to spill, Dr. Howard Dean. Dr. Howard dean now in
2: 2004 you were a Deaniac. am i revealing too much not at all i mean everybody was (laughs) yeah i mean the guy was a sensation he's rising in the polls he's
0: unapologetically democratic he's against the war he understood grassroots organizing and internet fundraising well before anybody else
2: and then poof it's gone now, the popular conception is that one speech in Iowa doomed him.
0: Dakota, 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 not just any speech, Sam. Washington the scream Trump speech. The scream speech.
1: And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Yeah!
2: Well, we talked to Dean about that. And, not surprisingly, he thinks it's a bit more complicated.
1: I knew I had to change. I knew I couldn't win as an insurrectionist. I knew that sober-minded people who take the presidency seriously... They're not going to nominate a populist who's spewing hellfire and damnation. They're going to nominate somebody who they want to see in the White House. And I wasn't that person.
2: Beyond the bluster.
1: Behind the bunting.
2: Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up.
0: And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stein. Okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis.
2: And we approve this podcast. Let's start at the beginning, okay? Because we're taping right now. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, what was the precise moment that you began to consider the idea of running?
1: Uh, I cons- This is all ex post facto reconstruction, of course. I um, considered it in 2000 because I remember going out to see Gore and informing him that I was thinking about running against him in the primaries, and before my plane had landed back in Burlington, his staff had cut my legs off from under me and leaked, leaked it, and my, my numbers went down about 20 <laughs> points in, uh, in Vermont, and I realized that I couldn't run for re-election and talk about running for president, so that was the end of that race. <laughs>
2: How about for uh, the 2004
1: race? Well, you I I never, everybody has their own different way of doing this. Uh, I just, it was in my blood and I never thought about it. I just did it. Did you ever have a conversation with your family or was there a particular (laughs) conversation where you said, you know, I'm going to do this? I'm not good at that. I, uh, <laughs> the way my, found, my wife found out I was running for lieutenant governor was reading it in the paper. Somebody called her up and said, "What do you think about your husband running for lieutenant governor?" Lieutenant governor? She said, "What?" Because <laughs> what had happened was I was I was a you know I was I had gone up pretty fast in the legislature. I was the minority uh, whip after my first term, and and we moved because I had another kid in the way. We couldn't stay in our little apartment, so we had to buy our first and only house, yeah. and it was in somebody else's district. So the choice was you run against some, a Democrat, which I wasn't going to do. You run for the state Senate, which in our county is hard because it's a big county, relatively speaking. You run against Jeffords knowing you're going to lose, or you run for lieutenant governor. So I figured in for a dime, in for a dollar. Why don't you run for lieutenant governor? It's not any hard. So I thought I'd be really careful and thoughtful and sneaky and clever and I leaked this to a 21-year-old rookie reporter who was a really nice person who I trusted. I learned not to do that later. Um, and I sat down with her in the chairs up by the, in the legislature, and I said, you know, I was th- – the, the idea was for her to write a story in the southern paper who had, where I had zero name recognition and say, uh, Dean is thinking about running for lieutenant governor. Well, the next day I look at the Rutland Herald, and it's a front page, huge banner headline across the top. Dean to run for number two spot. I just <laughs> went. So I, then I had to spend Saturday explaining to my wife that I hadn't really said that, but we couldn't get out of it now. I think everybody would have rather I not run because it was pretty dis- <laughs> disruptive to everybody's life.
0: Was there some, like, low, low moments at
1: home or something where <laughs> everyone sort of tiptoeing around this idea? No, because we didn't really have a dis- I don't remember having a discussion. I remember sort of telling people I was going to do it. Okay.
2: And it's like, it's like, honey, I'm home, and by the way, I'm running for
1: president. Well, look, you have to understand how our family works. Um, everybody's really independent, and everybody pretty much does what they want. The deal I had with Judy when I was governor was she only – I'd only ask her to appear twice every two years, once for the election, once for the inauguration. And she didn't ever set foot on a campaign trail with me, ever. And I did that because I knew she didn't want to do it. I knew she had no interest in politics, which actually ideally made, which made her the ideal political partner. Because her role in her political career was to tell me when I was wrong and I looked like an idiot. Mm. And she didn't have some, some reason not to because she had no investment in my being a politician. I'm sure she never told you. you she were told me all the time okay. I was <laughs> wrong and I looked like an <laughs> idiot, which was great for me. You've got to have your feet grounded in this business. And i luckily been very lucky I had two people, a chief of staff and a wife, who kept my feet very firmly grounded and were not afraid to tell me when I was being dumb.
2: And when you, when you made that decision... Um, when that light bulb went off and you said, I'm going to do this. At that moment, what was your best case scenario?
1: The, 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 we, I was going to do it because I wanted to balance the budget and I wanted universal health insurance. Yeah. Those were, that was the rationale behind the campaign. Yeah. And I wasn't from Washington. Yeah.
2: But that's not a best case scenario
1: unless the best case scenario is I wanted people to talk about those. Oh, topics. no, no. I wanted to win. I mean, yeah. um, you don't do this without winning I mean wanting to win. That's, you just, that's crazy to even think about well, that. Well, some people would say, I want to just make sure that my topics get discussed. Yeah, and those are people who lose and nobody pays any attention to them, and their topics don't get discussed until after <laughs> somebody wins. Campaigns are not for education, and nobody should ever try to educate somebody during a campaign. If you do, you lose. Maybe your issues will get talked about afterwards, and usually the front runner promises you they're going to consider your issues when you're about to endorse them. It <laughs> doesn't, ha- doesn't work that way. Don't do it. you gotta, can't always got to run to win.
2: So uh, what was your first impression of Iowa?
1: Nice people. Um, they'd seen it all before, so there were no, no early commitments. Yeah. Uh, and it really is a system, for all its faults, and it has many, it's an incredible system where somebody who nobody's ever heard of is taken seriously. Yeah. And that's what I was most grateful for, was that when I'd go in somebody's li- living room from Iowa and they'd never heard of me and sort of barely knew where Vermont was, they'd still listen.
2: Was there like a specific moment where you were like, I'm not in Vermont anymore?
1: No. Uh, you know, Iowa is a relatively small state and so is Vermont. And there is a cultural sharing. Between places like Iowa and Vermont and New Hampshire, and small places where people know each other, they respect each other. There's not this sort of hard nose, let's get drunk in the back of the room while this guy's giving a speech, which I ran into in Essex County, New Jersey, and places like that. Uh, it, people. You want to tell us about Essex County, yeah, kind of yeah. New Jersey? Oh, I was great. I went to give a speech for Jim McGreevy who was not in good shape at the time, No. and to Essex County, New Jersey, which is a tough county, and the county bosses have a lot of say in New Jersey, and I remember giving this spellbinder speech <laughs> rallying the faithful. There was a huge crowd of guys in the back just getting drunk and ham- having a great story and slapping each other in the back, and they didn't hear a word I said. The people in the front row loved it,
0: yeah. but that what was it? about it. <laughs> were there places in Iowa where
1: you were literally speaking to five people? Oh, or yeah. So Absolutely. Somebody we knew indirectly or somebody who we knew who knew somebody we knew would agree to have a coffee and five people would show up. But you weren't demoralized speaking to a room of four individuals and walking away with 20 dollars nah. in your pocket. No, nope. I was never demoralized. <laughs> the only time I got I, – I, I can only remember being demoralized a couple of times. Once I was demoralized when I got home at 2 o'clock in the morning in the plane from someplace – and had to leave at 5. So I landed, went to bed, got up, and never said hello to my children or my wife. That was a really low point. That was fairly early. And, that, and then I got a new scheduler, because yeah. uh, that was ridiculous. The job scheduler job is not to please the campaign staff. It's to make sure I can still function in one yeah. piece. It never, the scheduling never did go right, but it was much better after sure. we changed that. What was the other time you were demoralized? Um, I was towards the end in Iowa uh, when... <laughs> I went to a Martin Luther King... This time I was the front frontrunner. Yeah. And I went to a Martin Luther King event, and there was a press riot. Uh, I went, the press... 75 people showed up from the press, and I didn't say anything. Was a, you know, it was a big deal. I mean, it was you know, 300 people or something. And I was sitting in the back, and, um, and they caused so much trouble that I realized that my presence was disrupting the ceremony. So I left. They didn't expect me to leave. They ran out television cameras, you know, notebooks flying all over the place, knocked down Leonard Boswell on his butt, uh, knocked down an old lady, and finally I got to the bus door and I looked at him and I said, you behave yourself and stop stop this kind of behavior. And uh, the next day the story is where Dean causes riot. (laughs) And I I thought to myself, you know, these guys really are assholes. (laughs) We'll take that as a compliment. Well,
2: (laughs) Well, they are. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. There were sort of traditional campaign elements that really helped you, like, for instance, sitting down with David Broder seemed to give you a real
1: shot in the arm. That's true. David Broder followed us on one of our very first, (laughs) the first trip to Iowa. Luckily, he didn't see our car. Some wonderful, well-meaning supporter picked us up at the airport in some, it was not at Des Moines, it was some small airport out in the rural area, and uh, he was driving a Lexus. And here we were in rural farm country, you know, in Iowa in the winter, yeah. driving around in a Lexus, and I'm just going, oh, God. So, of course, we were only staying in supporters' houses. We, we couldn't put up people in a hotel room. First of all, it was just Kate and I, more or less, yeah. and, uh, and the guy who was driving us. So we'd stay in these houses, in people's houses, and they'd be putting us in this spare room. One time, Kate... A shared a room with a five-year-old and woke up talking about leggings or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and David Broder followed us just to see what it was like. Not, yep. into,
2: not into the supporters' houses, or did he? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay.
1: Well, there was no reason not to. Sure. He was welcome, and he he wrote a, just an interesting column. But but that sort of got people noticing, Yeah, and it was kind of fun. Do you think, just out a the side note, do you think
2: like that sort of an antiquated feature of campaigns, like a, a media interview like that would actually
1: matter these days? Uh, it does matter, and I tell you why it's really important. Um, the genius of having places like New Hampshire and Iowa first are they're actually small enough so that people can look you in the eye and decide whether you're really presidential. You can pretty much do anything you want on television. I mean, you can make, you know, a pig into a, a silk purse uh, and people regularly do it. You can't do that looking in somebody's eyes in a living room. You just can't. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the first it makes sense, this system we have. Uh, because in the first couple of states, I'd add South Carolina and Nevada, which we added because of the diversity issue. You can get away with a New Hampshire and Iowa at first in the Republican Party. You can't do that in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And so we th- that's why, why when I got to be chair, we added South Carolina and Nevada to the early primaries. And you go into people's living rooms in those places. They're all small. Yeah. Uh, ge- Nevada's not geographically small, but it's, you know, population-wise. it's, it's population-wise. It's not that big. And um, people just look you right in the eye, and they and they ask you exactly what's on their mind. And there's no gotcha questions, but in some ways they're harder. Sure. You know, I'm gay. How come I can't get married? Well, if you don't have a – you can't BS your way through that. And if you do, they're going to catch you. Sure. Do you remember one particular moment where someone asked you a question that you just couldn't really – Handled. No, because my strength as a candidate and my particular strength as an office holder was I said what I thought. Now of course that ended up getting me in a great deal of trouble later on. We'll get to that. There wasn't <laughs> much that you could ask me that I wasn't going to pretty much sure. tell you straight up what I thought, much to the horror of my campaign staff sometimes.
0: You had described I think campaigns are filled with excitement and grinding boredom.
1: What was the grinding boredom? Sitting in a car, sitting in a car for five hours a day being driven through yet another snowy, windy Frozen landscape going on to the next event. How do you alleviate the boredom? Did
0: you have like, um, did you bring along tapes or CDs with you? Or
1: no, I mostly tried to sleep because I was getting four hours of sleep at night. And unlike Bill Clinton, I can't. Yeah, you could sleep in the car.
2: We 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 know you're a cheapskate, right? I'm very cheap. Yeah, and and I mean that in the best.
1: Yes, I do. I watch the public money very
2: well. Yes, (laughs) thank (laughs) you, Sam. So (laughs) you slept in people's homes. You, you know, drove cars without heat. What else did you do to save some campaign
1: cash? Uh, my suits were a topic of great dismay among the campaign staff. Yeah, I would wear them too much and after they were ripped and so forth and so on, and including after I gained 25 pounds. <laughs> that did not look as good as it might. <laughs> my selection of ties occasionally had spots on them, which was bad. I think Kate once signed me up for one of those tie-cutting contests where somebody cuts your tie off just because she desperately wanted to get rid of the tie.
2: Where the proceeds went to your campaign, obviously. Oh, one fun moment I didn't
1: tell you. I I play a little blues guitar. Not well, but I play. And uh, I played in a coffee house in Iowa with a guy who actually knew what he was doing. It was really fun. Were you
2: nervous?
1: (laughs) That I was nervous about. I never got nervous during the campaign, but I was really nervous about about playing with this playing with this guy cuz he was so much better than i was oh, and i was afraid they would actually hear how terrible i was it was really Because <laughs> he fun. would
2: get nervous if he went on stage to talk about iraq you know yeah, like, maybe. you were out of your element
1: what's your favorite piece of memorabilia from the campaign favorite piece of memorabilia wow Do you have anything oh, i'm you sure i have anything. tons of stuff but i my favorite story is the story about the lady that gave me the bag of quarters which I Tell have the not, story. haven't told you that. Okay, I think so. So I'm in a relatively small gathering in Iowa, like maybe 50 people in a hotel room or something. And there's a lady in a wheelchair, and afterwards she, I give the talk, and she comes up, and she gives me this bag, and it's heavy. And I said, what's in here? He said, it's $50 and quarters. And I said, well, you can't give me that. She said, I've been saving out of my disability check for five years for something that was worth spending this on, and now i found it. That is an incredible piece of memorabilia. You still have the bag? No. <laughs> you gotta keep it. I don't know bag. what I did with the bag. What about the quarters? I'm sure I gave it to. <laughs> I probably gave it to. You know, when you, somebody gives you that, yeah. you hand it to some aide. You got told, Bridges, so you know? <laughs> some, some guy, some, <laughs> got some body person on my camp. By that time, I'm sure I had a huge entourage. So, somebody, some lucky body person in my campaign got $50 worth of quarters. Do you remember the moment where. You became the front runner. Do you remember where the crowds were big? Where you, it's something that you know. It happened on the Sleepless Summer tour. I didn't become the front runner there, but that that brought Washington to a standstill. As I found out later when we had this bat, and we people would donate money, and it was like one of those thermometers mm-hmm. that went up, 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 yeah. and we went over the top in Bryant Park, and we were drawing with, At the time, we enormous crowds, <clears throat> and apparently everybody in Washington was watching the bat because, of course, it would be televised. I <clears throat> go up over the top and we live-streamed st- live it, or, or, or the smart 22-year-olds who were running the campaign <laughs> live-streamed it. And that was really fun. It, it, was, that, it was fun. And I was absolutely exhausted. I, you know, we, it was really the sleepless summer tour for me. I mean, we were doing three and four rallies a day, and some of them were enormous. Yeah. And we had 10,000 people in Seattle, which at the time was really big, especially in a primary.
2: Next up, it really is all about the money.
0: In the stories, I was surprised to read that you were sort of um, a bit of a Luddite when it came to computers. Ah, Very much
1: so of a Luddite. I still am a Luddite. Did you need convincing?
0: I mean, I mean, what were the discussions like in terms of using the internet to to collect donations and to to fund your
1: campaign? What were, how did that? Come well, first about? of all, I wasn't in the headquarters much. The way that happened is a lot of people who were in their very early twenties showed up at the campaign, usually without being paid anything, and uh, decided they would do something different yeah. with the computers. And nobody who was older knew anything better than tell them not to, so they did. <laughs> and so. You know, then they could explain it to me, and I got it conceptually. I completely get it. But, you know, it's like speaking Arabic. If you've grown up speaking Arabic, it's not hard. If you're trying to learn it when you're 25, or in my case, 50 or whatever I was, it's a little more difficult. And these guys were digital natives, and they totally got everything, and we just went, huh? I mean, what they did was unbelievable. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. There was none of this stuff, just email and really incredibly clunky websites. One of my favorite things about the clunky websites is we had a website called Convio, which is supposedly a donor site, and Gephardt and, and uh, Lieberman had signed up for it. And of course, we people would send us money in floods. So every time they we put out an email, their websites crashed because Convio couldn't handle <laughs> any of this stuff. It was, I mean, it was just the, it was the dark ages in terms of the net.
2: Even though you had this great uh, internet
1: pool of money coming in, you were also spending a lot of time going to fundraisers. Yeah, but not as much as everybody else. And I wasn't doing any dialing for dollars. Yeah. The, the fundraisers you have to do, uh, of course, now everything's different because of Citizens United. Sure. Uh, but in the, you have to do the you have to touch the influential people in the party. Uh, you may be running as a populist candidate, which I was, and you may be running against the Democratic Party, which I came to realize that I was since everybody else in the race had supported bush 's tax cuts and the Iraq war and all these other things. Uh, but you still have to at the end of the day, if you want to be president, you have to touch all the parts of the party, not just the anti establishment parts. Mm-hmm
2: fundraisers, uh, people who donate, are famous uh, for thinking that they're great political strategists on
1: top <laughs> that of That is a fact. That is a fact. So what was the worst piece of advice you ever got from a I big don't, I don't know because I didn't listen to any. I mean, I, no, I liked them. Yeah. And, and some of them were great. Rob Reiner actually was incredible. Rob Reiner worked as hard as any paid staffer, and Martin Sheen was another one. Yeah. I remember driving a huge bus into some garage in Iowa you know, with thousands of supporters. I thought that was a little over the top in retrospect. Uh, but if you're going to be in first place, you might as well have fun while you are. <laughs> uh, but, you know, some of them, like Rob had good political instincts. The best political instincts are some, of somebody, of course, which you'd expect was Tom Harkin, Tom and Ruth Harkin. They were the ones that made me bring Judy out to campaign for the first time in my career. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, how did you not know who Annette Benning was? I just I'm a Philistine. I don't watch. I don't look. I stopped watching serious movies when I was in medical school because my life in medical school, when you're dealing with people's horrible tragedies, you don't need to go to the screen. I used to love dark movies when I was in college. I loved Midnight Cowboy and I loved Fellini and all these stuff. And after I went to medical school, I stopped watching all that stuff because I figured real life was bad enough. I didn't need that in my spare time, but little of it there was. So I, I haven't, I probably watched 15 movies since I was about 30. And in,
0: in the in the New York uh, magazine story here, that they did a profile of you, and uh, they described you at one point having to go into Manhattan and talk to just sort of some of the sort of more financial sort of bigwigs, like meeting with Soros and these other, mm-hmm. what was that like?
1: Oh, it was fun. I walked into Soros's apartment, who was actually very supportive, although he was also supporting Wesley Clark at the time in true Soros for- <laughs> fashion. I walked into his apartment. and I looked at the wall and I do like art I'm not an art maven but I love and I love impressionism and I looked at the wall and my jaw dropped and I stepped over and sure enough it was a Monet Wow and that was just over the fireplace and I'm just, I'd never <laughs> okay. been in an apartment like that before I, it was pretty cool actually wow. so at, least he, at least we had the same taste in art
2: Let's turn the chapter to when things started going south. Um, you, as you mentioned, would, you know, sort of rose because of your willingness to talk in blunt terms and so right. was on your mind. And at some point in time, it became a problem. It was uh, a liability, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, just two examples. Uh, the Confederate flag reaching, appealing to... Yeah, the that peoples. was not a problem. That was not a problem. No. The Saddam, uh, after Saddam's capture, you mentioned that we would be uh, in Prussian, we weren't going to be... but you said we were going we were not going to be safer because of right it. which
1: was a stupid thing to say although it happened to be true of course of course but it was stupid because that was the day that uh, the Iraqi I mean the uh, the troops that were in Iraq should have felt great about themselves and the American people felt great and It was true that our capturing Saddam didn't make us any safer, and there's any proof that I was right. It's today what's going on. If you look at the record, in 2003, when I gave that speech, I predicted exactly what was going to happen, which was that Iraq was going to splinter into three countries, and al-Qaeda was going to be in charge of part of it, Mm -hmm. which is except for the fact that al-Qaeda is ISIS in that legend. That's exactly what happened, and that the eastern part of Iraq was going to become a vassal state of Iran, which happened about four years ago or five years ago with Maliki. So all those terrible things I predicted came true. So I, don't, I make no apologies for being for saying something that wasn't true. The, the stupidity was probably would have been better to keep your mouth shut at a time <laughs> like that.
2: Iraq became sort of your signature issue because you were the only one opposed to the war. Right.
1: Um, well, they were all scrambling like mad to pretend they were opposed to the war. Sure. As in I was for it before I was against it. <laughs> Do you think in retrospect that had
2: you run in, say, like 2008, because the war at that time, was going moderately well. There were advances, but as you noted, it would end up going pretty south by 2003, 2004. Had you run later in 2008, for instance, do you think you would have done better? Absolutely not.
1: I came at the, exactly the right time. Um, and it was... Nobody, everybody had been afraid to take on Bush. I was the one legitimate candidate that wasn't afraid to take on Bush. I, I mean, the what-if game is silly, because then I would have run against Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, and that was certainly going to be a lost cause. But... Um, you know, I mean, so I mean, no, I came at exactly the right time. It's just that I wasn't meant to be president. That's all.
2: Was there, I mentioned two, but was there one that sort of sticks with you in addition to that?
1: Well, there was was one that I regret. There was a a meeting we had in Iowa. There's about 150, 200 people and it was a town meeting. And some guy got up who was just obnoxious and harassing me and and so he yelled and screamed for a while, and I said something back. And then somebody else got up and started to ask a question, and he jumped up and sort of pushed her aside and said, and furthermore, I said, you sit down, you've had your say, let somebody else have their turn. But it was at the time then the four other campaigns that were co- colluding said, uh, was, was t- saying, Dean is an angry man, so he shouldn't. So, of course, the evening networks were all over that. Mm-hmm. That would have, I mean, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. There should have been a different way to handle that. Um. One of the more uncomfortable elements of a
2: campaign is the toll it takes on your family. And at various junctures, some stories would pop up about your wife not being on the campaign trail, right. and then even rumors that were circulated about a p- a pending impending divorce. Um, there was probably some other campaign that circulated that one. I, I think well. that, yes. that's what, what rumors that's was, Kate was uh, suggesting. Yeah. There was a reference, I think, Kate yeah. was Carrie campaign. That was
1: Carrie. Did it take a toll? It pissed me off more than anything else. I mean... You know, I leave the process. Here's my view on the process of running for president. It's, you know, life is full of assholes. And there's a lot of them in the political business and a lot of them in the journalism business. And so you've come feeling, you know, I had this conversation. I think Kate describes the conversation in the book with Gore in the middle of the night and when he called me in the hotel in Milwaukee. And I said, why am I a Democrat? Why do I have to deal with these people? Explain to me why I should do anything for the Democratic Party. But as I thought about it some more, I realized that you have to understand this. Politics is a substitute for war. 300 years ago, in order politics does two things. One is asset allocation, and the other is transition in power. We used to kill each other over transitions in power and kill each other over asset allocation. So today, even though this process is very tough and you do not see the nice side of people and people who get ahead are not all nice, but considering where we were 300 years ago, this is a huge improvement. And this is, for, this is a battle for the most powerful position on the face of the earth. You think people are going to be nice? You think they're not going to spread rumors about your wife having a divorce? They've been doing this stuff for years. Cleopatra had mean things said about her. <laughs> so, I mean, I, if, if you put it in perspective, this press is a hell of a lot better than the press we used to use.
2: Yeah. The conversation you had with Al Gore uh, that night was related to you finding out that there were Democratic donors funding a shadowy group Right. That had been attacking you. Right. And I don't think a lot of listeners uh, probably know this, but according to Kate, you, at that point in time, in that moment, seriously contemplated or seriously discussed leaving the Democratic Party. Was it serious?
1: Well, at the time it was, but I was furious. (laughs) You know, no, it wasn't very serious. It lasted about 24 hours. (laughs) I went home and got some sleep and cleaned my garage out, and it was much better. (laughs) I was really mad. I mean, it's a tough process. You know, as I said, just said, people are not nice in politics. They're not nice in journalism. But, you know, compared to the way this process used to work 250 years ago, it's an enormous improvement.
2: As his star starts to fall, Dean begins to feel like Jerry Garcia. Come again. Jerry Garcia, The Grateful Dead. Never heard of
1: him. Was there a moment when he thought it was slipping away? Yep. I can remember the moment. It was in Iowa. It was about three weeks before the end. And I all of a sudden realized that I was going from event to event with these enormous crowds. And it was like being the Grateful Dead. It was the same crowd. And I'd leave the stage. I'd rile them all up. They'd all go crazy. And at this point, I could have said, "I'm having spaghetti for lunch," and they all would have gone, "Yeah!" <laughs> so, I mean, it was that crazy, right? And I'd get off the stage, and we'd go do a little something, or right? I'd have some downtime and get a sandwich or something. I'd go to the next rally, and there'd be a huge crowd of thousand people, and they'd be the same people. But you'd say, "I'm having a pork chop for lunch." <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that, but I, you know, I, when I saw that, I realized what was happening was this was not about ordinary Iowans. And once it's not about ordinary Iowans in the Iowa primary, you're in big trouble. And I knew I was in trouble. And we did a lot of stupid things, some of which I didn't know about. I mean, we put ads up against Gephardt, which is a really stupid thing to do. Because if in a four- or five-way race where you have, say, five legitimate candidates, the two that fight it out and smear each other, somebody else is going to sneak up in between, which is exactly what happened. So there were a lot of dumb things that were done. Um, What
0: were some of the other dumb
1: things? Well, our Iowa operation didn't work right. I didn't know how to—I knew a lot about a lot of states. I didn't know much about Iowa caucuses. And it turns out that we had a lot of ones and we were doing really well, but you've got to check the ones. And if you don't check the ones, they slip away, and we weren't doing that. I, went, I remember when I went out there, and there was this guy there who, in the campaign who I didn't like very much, and I said, show me the ones. And he gave me some bullshit about how he wasn't going to show it to me. I said, give me the goddamn ones right now. And he turned pale and gave me them, and I realized that we were really... And this was two weeks before the end, so I, I knew, I knew it was slipping away.
2: Did you know... What was going on at your in your office? No,
1: it was a disaster. I knew it wasn't good. What happened was I hired Joe uh, as a co-campaign person because Joe had a lot of attributes. Joe's a very smart guy. And he understood the internet, which is unusual for somebody his age. Uh, but the, the most of the really smart people actually were that ended up as being superstars were actually hired by Rick Ritter and Karen Hicks, who went out uh, of who, who a was Robbie Mook's first boss and went on to be uh, Hillary's field director, uh, Stephanie Shriok, who's turned into a superstar. These people were hired by Ritter, but Ritter couldn't work. You know, it's hard to have co-managers, and it was stupid. And when I hired Joe, I said, Joe, I really appreciate you're doing this, but I'm gonna, you're not a manager. I'm going to make a change in September. And September came along and I was leading. So I thought to myself, if you make the change, you're going to get two weeks of stories about Dean campaign and disarray. Well, the momentum was like that, so I didn't. But by November or December, the atmosphere in the campaign headquarters had completely fallen apart. And it never bubbled up to your attention. I knew it was happening, but I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't get off the road, and there was nobody there that could. I mean, I should have come back and said, "You guys have got to do this," but I was hanging. I, you know, I, I, at, at some point, I was just hanging on to what was going on the road, and I couldn't do both anymore.
2: Paint, paint the scene for us. You've the the results are in, and you've lost the caucus. You get in a car to go to your. "Quote unquote victory party," mm-hmm. uh, with your staff, and you sit there for 15 minutes in what is described in this book as silence. Paint, paint us what's going
1: on. Paint us a scene of what's going on. Well, I, I think we were probably. I don't remember any time of despair. I, I, I mean, I knew what was going to happen before it happened. I wasn't surprised. Um, and I, we we're waiting for the results. And I remember Joe saying just before I went on stage, "Go out and let you know, give him a." A, a morale builder. Don't, don't, just don't let this get you down. <laughs> well, that was pretty good morale builder, right? What happened Still next? talking about it <laughs> 11 years later. We will not give up in New Hampshire. We will not give up in South Carolina. We will not give up in Arizona or New Mexico.
2: So after the interview was over, we realized we wanted to talk a little bit more with Dean about the scream. So a few weeks later, we caught up with him at his office in downtown D.C. This is what he had to say.
1: What was it like in that Oh, It was spectacular. You know, I'd, I'd finished third, and I had 1,200 kids who were making so much noise you, could have, you couldn't have heard a jet engine in that room, and I went out and just gave them holy hell, and it was absolutely great. It was not a concession speech, needless to say. Yeah.
2: But then at what point did you know it wasn't
1: great? Oh, um, about two hours later, as I was getting on the plane to New Hampshire, everybody was saying, Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is awful, and blah, blah, blah. These
2: are campaign people saying, Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And they had heard what, through other reporters or TV coverage? I think it was TV. Actually, it really didn't start till the next day because the reporters, there were about 75 reporters in the room since everybody thought I was going to win Iowa. And um, none of them wrote about it because they'd seen, you know, fiery speeches before. It was the cable people that sort of diddled with the speech, frankly. I mean, as you know, the the microphone was plugged directly into the camera, so you didn't hear any of the kids' noise. So, you know, as I have said before, if I'd looked at myself giving that speech in an empty hall, I would have thought I was crazy.
2: So what was the strategy session like that morning when you realized you had a problem and that people were taking the speech
1: and sort of, making it look like you were an insane man, basically. Well, I mean, the, the strategy was get me in front of some people. I did a Diane Sawyer uh, interview with Judy, and I think we did another one, a couple of those, and, you know, try to bring it back to um, the center. But, um, you know, we were still doing pretty well in New Hampshire. There's, at one point, Carrie and I were tied in New Hampshire, uh, you know, which came a week later. So, you know, my I, the staff was upset about it, and some of them still kicked themselves for not giving me a different mic and all this kind of stuff. My attitude is, look, I could feel the wheels coming unglued three weeks before the primary. I knew we were in trouble, and we were in trouble because we were disorganized, because I was an insurgent candidate who couldn't make the turn mm-hmm. to become a, an establishment candidate, and. People don't want an insurgent as president. They love insurgents because they are always mad at the government, but at the end of the day if you're gonna be president you gotta look like one and I never could quite bring myself to do that. Did you
2: have um, prepared remarks or was that off the cuff? Oh no, it was off the cuff. Had you had, did you have prepared remarks for a possible win that night?
1: I I don't prepare remarks. Okay. So <laughs> I can let it rip, which is one of my problems. <laughs> Very. I true. mean, Trippie <laughs> took me aside and said, look, just the people are down. This is not what they expected. Just go out and give them hell. But that, that car ride doesn't stick with you at all, was it? And it, was, it was. I didn't think it was doom and gloom. Kate probably did. I mean, one thing you have to understand about the campaign, or, and this may be true of most campaigns, you know the candidate has to be entirely in it all the time. The candidate cannot have moments of doubt and sadness and regret and all that stuff because there are all these people depending on you. Not all these people, not just these people who are voting for you and you've knocked on doors, but the people who are with you. So they probably did feel down. I don't remember feeling down. Yeah, I didn't even feel down when I knew Wisconsin was the end. We got on the plane, and I made sure I stopped by Sprecher's Root Beer and got five cases and put it on the plane because I knew I wouldn't be flying east anytime soon in my own plane. I guess you, you, this book, you drank a lot of milkshakes and a lot of root beer. I know. It was terrible. I gained about 30 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was always sleep-deprived, and one thing to cheer, since I don't drink or, ca- or at that time I wasn't drinking any caffeine either. Yeah. So it was just sugar. I'd come in the plane, and I'd stuff up. We'd have this enormous bowl, glass bowl like this, full of peanut M&M's. And I, that was what I would eat. Ugh. And then we'd go on a tour of Sprecher's Root Beer, which is the best in Milwaukee. Do you think their beer is good? Their root beer is even better.
0: You said that you couldn't make the turn to from from uh, Insurgent to Front Runner. Um, so I'm just curious as to looking back, like, why you felt
1: like you couldn't. Or the audience. Make the turn?
0: Yeah, why? You try. You
1: make- they were deeply invested in having somebody who wasn't going to put up with any crap from any establishment. And having been a governor for six terms, I knew very well that the governor has to put up with crap from everybody. You, your job is to make things work, and that means you can't exclude people whether you like them or not. Um, and I'd had a lot of experience where I didn't want to meet people because I disagreed with them and all this, and my chief of staff would just say, no, you're going to meet these people. It's part of your job. So I knew I had to make the turn. And I could, I just—it was very, very hard. I, ne- I didn't successfully do it. I mean, I didn't—I ran out of time. I couldn't make myself do it. It was really a tug of war. I could actually feel the tugging as I would try to do it, and I would try to give a measured speech, and the audience would be completely flat, and I wouldn't let myself leave them flat. In a because you were probably used to the, 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 the rousing crowds. Give 'em hell! Howard. I'm gonna go to hell. You know what? Just like Harry Truman said, I don't give them hell, I just tell the th- truth and they think it's hell. I was used and I also realized I was giving something they deeply valued, was, which was hope. And, I, and, and, to, and to pull back and become the establishment figure that I knew I had to become to become president was really hard to do because I was taking, I, I had to teach them an incredibly unpleasant lesson, which is that people like me don't win presidencies behaving like that that you have to deal with the reality that includes a whole lot of people that aren't progressive and that aren't nice and that, that aren't good about human rights, and that I was going to have to teach them that that was going to be part of the deal. But I guess the question is, did you know that people like you didn't win? Or people- oh yeah, of course I knew. That's why I knew I had to make the turn, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it.
0: What were the perks
1: of of being the being the number one candidate? I wouldn't call them perks, but yeah. you have your you know you have your own plane, so you don't have to slump your bags around and worry about it. Somebody else takes care of all the all the details. Um, I guess that's about it. You get driven around in a town car instead of driving around in a Volkswagen with no heat. <laughs> <laughs> we had some funny times. I always remember in New Hampshire, we were trying to see if I could come back after Iowa. And, I, we had, you know, the people who worked on the campaign were just unbelievable. We had a 19-year-old girl who had dropped out of college to help. And she's from New Hampshire, so she's driving us around. And, you know, I, I'm i a, a, as you might suspect from a doctor, I'm a bit of a control freak. And I was at my worst when I was tired. And so we're driving someplace in the middle of the night, and we're clearly not going where we're supposed to. And I said why don't you take your left here and go right over there? Because I think she looked at me and she said, I grew up here and I know what I'm doing, Governor. <laughs> Being told what, where to get off by a 19-year-old. I think it was pretty funny. I still see her parents once in a while. They always give me the business about it. That's awesome. It was awesome. It was a fun campaign. I don't regret it for a moment. It was a great thing to do. And you you find out how great the American people are. The, the really great thing that came out of the campaign was there's a whole generation of smart People went to work in my campaign in their first jobs, slept on floors, got paid two hundred bucks a month if they were lucky. Uh, Ezra Klein was a blogger for us. Eli Pariser was a blogger for us. Uh, Joe Rosebars did our web, and then went on with his friends to do uh, Blue State Digital. So there's a whole. It brought an entire generation uh, into um, into politics. Uh, and, and, and it did sort of set the stage for Obama in, in that way. And you had a thirteen-year-old. Oh, the, the so I'm exhausted. Like in December, I get off the campaign trail, and it's winter in Vermont, which is not a slight ordeal. And there's this little blonde kid sitting in the sort of what passed for a lobby of our hotel of, of our uh, headquarters. So I walk in, and there's a fuss around him. And I say, "Oh, hi. How are you? You know, this is my every two weeks visit to buck up the troops." And the, so the story in short is this. This kid is 13 years old. He looked like he was 10. He uh, somehow convinced his parents uh, – he lived in Anchorage. Or no, he lived in Sitka, Alaska. He convinced his parents that, that he would like as his Christmas present to come back and work in the Dean campaign. His parents let him go unaccompanied from Sitka, presumably by Anchorage, through Chicago to land in Burlington. And he shows up. Who knows how? I suppose he must have taken a taxi and went to the Dean headquarters. Whereupon, here I am, ready to work. Now, we, this, was, this was a flophouse campaign. There were thousands of 20-year-olds who were all living in houses we'd rented on mattresses and who knows what was going on in the off hours, not that there were a lot of them. And now we have this 13-year-old who's just arrived to work on the campaign, unsupervised. So somebody has to be an adult to this 13-year-old, right? <laughs> Today, this 13-year-old is a member of the Alaska state legislature. He's a Democrat representing Sitka Unbelievable. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? I mean, you cannot make this stuff up. His name is Jonathan Christ Tompkins, and he's a great guy. I don't know if he won re election because, of course, this was not a good Democratic year. But you ought to interview him and find out what it was like to be a 13 year old in the Howard Dean campaign. It was a lot of fun. All right, that was great. Thank you, Governor. You're very welcome. Or Doctor. Doctor, Governor. Hair, Governor, Doctor, whatever. (laughs)
2: Next time on Candidate Confessional. By the time that I left the stage and the race, every man flipped. Every man, including Governor Romney, was for the full repeal of Obamacare. We welcome the one and only Michelle Bach. You can listen to more of Candidate Confessional by subscribing to our feed on iTunes or by checking us out at the Huffington Post. That's HuffingtonPost.com. Big thanks to Christine Canetta for deftly editing that podcast. She's the best. Along with Jason Cherkis, I'm Sam Stein. Happy trails.
1: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.